Genesis 17. I'm going to read the first eight verses. That's going to be the, the aim or the crux of our sermon this morning. There's a lot packed into Genesis chapter 17 and, and we'll get to those things in a moment. But for sake of the sermon today specifically, the first eight verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that, I'm, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, over the next two or three weeks, we're going to be working our way through Genesis 17 because there is a lot to unpack. Namely, there's the idea of covenant. We're going to talk about the idea of covenant. We talked about that before. When God cut a covenant with Abraham, but really Abraham was off uh, in a stupor off to the side. So God cut that covenant, sealed that covenant with himself. But this idea of God choosing for himself a covenant people. We're going to talk about that a good bit. Um, The fact that God has the authority to multiply the covenant people. He tells Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to multiply or I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to multiply your offspring. Okay, I have made you. The fact that over and over again, God's going to say, I'm going to do this. I have made you. I will make you. That God typically, overarchingly, is the active agent in all of this. Um, We're going to look at the fact that it's an everlasting covenant. Again, making the connection how do these promises and how, do, how does this covenant, how does it connect or how does it pertain to us today in 2023? And I would say that we all need to be very mindful that if you are of the faith, you are an offspring of Abraham. If I truly have saving faith, I am an offspring of Abraham. That is something that sadly, and in a lot of cases... Uh, we kind of make a separation like, oh, Israel, the church. Israel over here, the church over here, when Scripture clearly says, if you are of the faith, you are a child of Abraham. There is a true Israel, a spiritual Israel. Okay? So it's not Israel and the church aren't, so, aren't supposed to be disconnected and disjointed. There is one true people of God. Jew, Gentile. Slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, male, female, all are one in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that uh, to a greater extent. There is a, a land that's promised, specifically here, the land of Canaan. But as we go through the rest of Genesis 17 in the weeks to come, we're going to look at 
the sign of circumcision. We're going to look at um, uh, inside and outside of the house, meaning that even this sign of circumcision was for those who were ethnically Jewish people, ethnically an Israelite, but even uh, even those within the household that had been that had been bought or that had been added to the household from outside of the lineage of Israel, they were to be circumcised as well. And what that alludes to and what that points to. Um, we're going to look at the repercussion of what happens when people rebelled against this sign of the covenant. Uh, if anyone refused to receive circumcision, they were to be uh, disowned, if you will. They were to be excommunicated, if you will. And what of Ishmael? We're going to look at, at Ishmael, the son born to Hagar. We're going to look at the fact that God makes specific promises or or specific guarantees to Ishmael and his line. And overall, if you haven't caught on to this already, we, we talk about this much in our study through Genesis, we're going to see towards the end of chapter 17, God's complete sovereignty and God's complete control over everything. Over Abraham and his household. Over Ishmael and his household. Over the lineage of Ishmael. Over the lineage of Abraham. Over Sarah, over Isaac, over everything. We're going to see how God is always and ever working all things according to His purposes. Namely, that Christ be exalted in all things through being the one who crushes the head of the serpent, which was promised in Genesis 3. So, again, I know that's a lot. There's a lot there. But my prayer is that through the grace of God and the aid of the Spirit of God, that God would grant to us a right understanding and to be able to connect all of these things and see the beauty of, again, how the Genesis account sets the stage for everything, for the rest of Scripture, and how that from the beginning, God has been working all things together according to His purposes and His will. We cannot miss that as believers. If we miss that, it's almost a guarantee that we're going to be misreading the rest of Scripture. If we fail to see how the rest of Scripture is directly connected to what happened in the Genesis account and how everything in Genesis and really the rest of the Old Testament, but right now specifically Genesis, how all of the things that are there are foreshadowings and, um, and types and shadows of Christ and of redemption... There's a very, very strong chance we're going to be misreading the rest of Scripture. I don't know about you, but I would hope that none of us would say, I want to misread Scripture. I want to miss stuff. I want to overlook things in Scripture. No, hopefully we would all say, oh, I very much want to rightly understand Scripture. I want to see all of the things that point to Christ. I want to see all of the things that point to the Gospel. So there really is a lot to unpack here in Genesis 17, but... Just the first eight verses this morning. Do note that this took place 13 years after the birth of Ishmael. If you look just above Genesis chapter 17, the last verse of Genesis 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 17 verse 1. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So 13 years have gone past. This is now, if you've been keeping track, you could say this is the third time that God is going to reiterate or to uh, to reaffirm the promise given to Abraham right from the outset when God called Abram away from his household to a land that he would promise him. We've got an account in Genesis 12, which is the call of Abraham. Abram, sorry. After this sermon, I'll finally just be able to say Abraham without having to correct myself. The call of Abram. Genesis 15 is when God cuts a covenant with Abram. And now, Genesis 17, there's going to be a... uh, a fleshly sign giving, given something that God tells Abraham, you and all of, the ho- all of the males of the household of Israel will be circumcised the eighth day. But even this is a sign that Abram is the beginning of the covenant people of God. And so, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you Greatly. So, first and foremost, the fact that the Lord appears and says, I am God Almighty. God is God. He does as He pleases. As as Moses is told in, in Exodus, God says to him, I am that I am. We're in the book of Genesis. Where did we start? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. All things find their source in God. All things are dependent upon God. God Himself is dependent upon no thing or no body. God is self-sustaining. God gives life and upholds all things that exist. He is the Almighty God. We cannot, we cannot overlook that. We cannot get used to that. We cannot become numb or complacent to that fact. When we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God. We are making a claim that we have faith that God Almighty looks upon us and says, that's one of mine. That's a weighty claim. So often in today's world, people are, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. And it's, there's no real weight. There's no, to put it very loosely, there's no oomph to the claim. Like, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? I go to church on Sundays. No, no, no. Let me, let me ask a follow-up question. This is hypothetical. I've never actually had this conversation with anybody in this way. Oh, you say that you're a Christian. So you believe that the eternal all-sufficient God of all creation looks down upon you and recognizes you as His child. You're a Christian? You're making that claim? You see how that kind of puts it in perspective. See, saying that we're a Christian shouldn't be this flippant thing that we're able to do because, well, I grew up in church. Or I grew up in church and I went to a Christian school and when I was 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, when I was young... I made a decision to follow the Lord and I professed faith in Christ and so I'm a Christian. 
I try to do the right things. I try to live a good life. I'm a Christian. No. When we claim to be Christians, we are claiming that the God of all creation has saved us through the blood of His perfect Son. And that He has actually sent His Spirit to us, within us, that cries out and testifies, Abba, Father. That is a weighty and significant claim. And you say, well, so far all we've read is that He says, I am God Almighty or I am the Almighty God. And Caleb, you're, you're kind of talking about salvation it seems. How are you making that connection? Because He tells Abram, Go before me, be blameless, so that I may establish my covenant with you. So now consider this. Again, we're doing a study of Genesis. You get to chapter 3 in Genesis, what happens? Adam and Eve go against the command, the law of God, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fall of mankind takes place. God is a holy God. We are a sinful people. If God, in His justice, decided to not save anyone, He would be within His rights to do that. But He didn't. Adam and Eve tried to make their own coverings. But God fashioned a covering for them and God applied that covering Himself. And we've talked about how that, in and of itself, is a picture of the gospel. God Himself has fashioned a covering. Namely, His own Son. Through the sacrifice of His own Son, we receive the righteousness of Christ. We are covered. His blood has made atonement for our sin. But back to Genesis. Getting ahead of myself again. We see the fall of mankind. We see God Himself make a cup. We see grace. We see mercy. We see a direct connection to a salvation that is to come. But then, not only that, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, but then... We read about the birth of a new son, Seth. And from that line, from Seth comes Noah. And Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. And when God judged all of creation, Noah and his family were spared. After they get off the ark, Noah and well, his sons and their wives populate the earth. We know that one of the sons received a curse. But from that lineage, to move briefly along here, from there we read about them populating the earth. We have the Tower of Babel. The languages are confused. The people are dispersed. And then we come to this miraculous, gracious, merciful call of Abraham. Get up. Go to a land that I will show you. I will make you the father of a great nation. 
in you shall all the people of the earth be blessed. And we looked at, I'll mention it again, we looked at the fact that in Galatians, Paul actually says, the gospel was preached to Abraham. What? How was the gospel preached to Abraham? Because God told him, in you shall all the people of the earth be blessed. That's the gospel. And now we have God telling Abraham, there is a covenant that I will establish between me and you and all your, all your offspring after you. It will be an everlasting covenant. The God of all creation, the holy God of all creation, looking down upon sinful mankind and establishing a covenant with sinful mankind. A covenant in which He will call sinful people His people. A covenant in which He will pour out grace and mercy and life to sinful man. Understand the gravity, the weight, the significance of what is taking place here. See, again, all too often we as modern day Christians, and especially if we grew up in the church, and I think this is just something that we all have to work through this at some point in our life, we do become kind of, Numb to the gospel. It becomes kind of stale to us. It doesn't matter who's preaching it. If it's a guest speaker. If it's a powerful evangelist or whatever. We hear the gospel and we're like. Yeah I know this. I grew up in church. And we start to get. Sadly we just get used to it. Heard this before. I know. Yeah I got it. Jesus came to earth. Died for our sins. Rose the third day. All who believe are saved. I love this. This is. And it's like. But do. Have we lost it? Have we lost the significance of it? Have we become, have we become callous to the fact that we as unworthy wretches, which is what, if you've got a problem with that, I'm sorry, but you should, honestly, you should just get used to understanding that in and of yourself, you're a wretch. Everybody's favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. Saved a what? A wretch. Like me. Like you. Even Paul himself referred to himself. I'm the chief of sinners. Christ came to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Right? In and of ourselves we are sinful wretches. Sinful wretches don't deserve to be called the people of God. Hello? Sinful wretches deserve the wrath of God. The judgment of God. The anger of God. And yet here in Genesis 17, we have God establishing a covenant with Abram. Just in case we've forgotten, Abram, parents were pagans. He doesn't have a stellar track record already in what we've covered in his life so far. He told Sarah to lie to the Egyptians. You're not my wife. Just tell them you're my sister. Right? (laughs) Tell them you're my wife. They're going to kill me. I don't want to die. And even Sarah. Sarah, okay, Abram, listen, why don't you just take Hagar? Maybe God will give me a child through her. And Abram's like, okay. Not a stellar track record. You know what Abram is? A wretch, a sinner. And God is establishing a covenant with wretched sinners in which they will be called His people? I pray. That we never become callous to that. And I pray. 
that on the occasions where we might be a little callous or we might be in the process of becoming callous, that God would would break us anew and afresh and help us to see that we should never become used to or callous to the miraculous nature of salvation. And that God would call sinful man His people. And that the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, would be credited to us. Because our sin was really credited to Him when He died upon the cross. So, see what's taking place here. Consider what's taking place here. God, free to do as He pleases. Again, if God wanted to just not save anybody, say, well, I'm going to let them continue to procreate. I'm going to let them go. I'm not saving any of them. In His justice, He'd be within His right to do so. But He doesn't. And not only does He just say, okay, Abraham, I'm going to save you and your household. And you shall all of the people of the earth be blessed. And we know that ultimately, this leads to what? An innumerable multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation giving glory to God for eternity for the salvation that He has granted them. God, free to do as He pleased. Literally the only one sovereignly free to do as He pleases. Chose to make a covenant with sinful man in which they will be called His people. And this too, do not lose this, this too is directly connected to the promise that was given when He told the serpent, there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And you will bruise His heel. And He will bruise or crush your head. And the rest of Scripture is the beautiful unfolding of that promise, of that guarantee. And we go from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem and Japheth to Abram. And now we have a covenant. And we know from Abram there's going to be Isaac. And from Isaac, Jacob. And the nation of Israel continues to grow and multiply and grow and multiply. And we know again, bear with me just... I know we're jumping, but we jump to the New Testament and then we come to the we come to the knowledge of the truth that those that are of the faith are the children of Abraham. That true Israel isn't just the ethnic line through which the Messiah came. That true Israel is anyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation who repents and places faith in Christ the Son. So the nation of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, are still increasing, still growing. Which is directly connected. God said what? I will multiply your offspring greatly. Stand before me, be blameless, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you and make you and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face. I want to make a brief note here. And I will try to be brief with this comment. 
Anytime in Scripture that people stand before the Lord or even have a vision of the Lord, falling on their face is typically what happens. The reason I do want to make a brief comment about this is that we live in a day and age where people will say, well, I saw the Lord in a dream or the Lord came to me in a vision. And then they'll say some really... I'm not trying to be funny. These are legitimate. They'll say some really blasphemous stuff. They'll say some really ungodly stuff. Like, oh, Jesus appeared to me and He was just laughing. And then He just ran to me and gave me a big old great big hug. And and I just started laughing with Jesus. And it was this, no. No. Or, I I, I saw a vision of Jesus and Jesus was crying. And and I just I, I ran to Jesus and gave him a hug and I said, Lord, why why are you crying? No, Mm-mm. no. Go to don't do this now, but in your go to Isaiah six. In the New Testament, go to the account where where Peter falls before Jesus when he realizes who's standing in front of him. The first chapter of Revelation. See what happens when people truly have a vision of the Lord or see a a theophany and and they have the Lord there. They fall down. They worship. So, I'll leave it at that. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be... Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will make my covenant with you and your offspring after you. I've used uh, I've used First Peter as a cross reference at least a handful of times now. I'm going to use it again. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse four. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who... Believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
That's why I started with Romans 4. Again, as I said, that's at least the third time that I've read that. But God who calls into existence things that don't exist. Israel as a nation did not exist. There was no such thing as an Israelite. There was no such thing as the ethnic people of God. That didn't exist. Until what? Until God called Abram. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A people for His own possession. Once you were not a people, He calls into existence things that don't exist. They weren't a people. There was no nation of Israel. And God says, Abram, get up, go to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you the father of a great nation. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Then you can apply that to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were without Christ and without hope in the world. But the mystery of the gospel is that Christ did not come just to save ethnic Israel. Christ came to save all those who had been given to Him by the Father. All those who would look upon the Son and believe. Regardless of if they were Jew, Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, whatever else. All are one in Christ. Once we, Gentiles, once we were not a people, but now, through Christ, we are God's people. We cannot overlook this. The mercy and the grace of God that instead of pouring out His wrath and judgment upon all of mankind in His mercy and in His grace, He has a chosen people for His own possession that He redeems through the blood of the Lamb, namely His Son, and He calls them His own. And they will be with Him in glory for eternity. I hope that all of us can hear that and say amen. Not amen just because it sounds good, but amen because we we say in our hearts, I know that's me. (laughs) I'm one of God's children. Not because of anything to do with me. Not because of anything that I have done or ever will do. In fact, it's in spite of the things that I have done and in spite of the things that I will do. Because of His grace and His mercy, He has called me His own. I did not deserve it. I did not earn it. I would never merit it. It is purely of grace that He has called me His own. So He makes the covenant and He says that it will be for you and all your offspring after you. But notice what he said. I have made you. This is in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of multitude of nations. There's no multitude of nations right now. Abram doesn't even, doesn't even have Isaac right now. But how does God speak of His promises? As if they've already been accomplished. As as if it's already done. I have called you Abraham. Because I have made you the father. Of many nations. It hasn't happened yet. But when God speaks. 
It will come to pass. I have made you the father of many nations. There's two other, there's more than two. I wrote down two references where something is spoken, spoken about as if it has already happened when it, when it has not actually happened yet. Romans 8, when it says that those that He justified, He also glorified. Not to burst anybody's bubble today. You have not received your glorified body yet, nor have I. We have not been bodily resurrected and received our glorified bodies yet. Okay? So how can Paul in Romans chapter 8 say, those that He predestined, He also called. Those that He called, He justified. And those that He justified, He also glorified. As if it was past tense. Because it's already been done. It's a guarantee. It's going to come to pass. If you have been saved, if you have been justified by faith, you will be glorified. Why? Because salvation is the work of God. And if it rests upon God, then He will finish the work which He has started. Oh wait, Paul says that in Philippians. He that has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right? Hebrews chapter 10. I believe... I believe I used this as a cross-reference two or maybe three weeks ago, but I think it was two weeks ago. But it says that when Christ died upon the cross, that sacrifice that He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So He has perfected, past tense, those who are being sanctified, present tense. If Christ's work upon the cross has already accomplished the the perfection or the glorification of those who are being sanctified currently, then you can rest assured it's going to come to pass that they will be perfected for all time. They will be with Him in glory. We will be fully sanctified. We will receive our glorified bodies. We will be with Him and reign with Him eternally. Right? But in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews, I kind of think it's Paul, but that's another discussion for another time. We don't really know the author of Hebrews. He says, once the work was done, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How can Scripture talk about these things as if they've already happened? Because from God's vantage point, if you will, they have already happened. God has accomplished and is accomplishing all that He intends to accomplish. We can... We can bank on it. Again, putting it loosely. You can bank on it. You can rest assured. These things will come to pass. So don't overlook that. Don't, don't read through that as if that's not kind of a big deal. Wait a minute, wait a minute. God said, I have made you the father of many nations. Isaac hadn't even been born. What is this? How can God say these things? Nothing can thwart the plans of God. Nothing can halt the will of God. Nothing can get in the way. Nothing can hinder it. Nothing can cause God to say, Oh, got to switch to plan B. God has a plan A, and there's never been a plan B. Do not overlook that. It's an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his offspring. Galatians chapter 3. Here, uh, you can turn to Galatians 3 if you would like. um, Because I do... This is a passage, as often as I'd use it as a cross-reference, maybe actually putting your eyes upon it will help it get cemented in your mind. 
And again, I, I'm, I'm trying to use as many similar cross-references or even the same cross-references as I can. So hopefully these things... you Oh, well, I'm in Genesis, but I know that there's something in Romans 4 that connects with Genesis. There's something in Galatians 3 that connects with Genesis. There's something in 1 Peter 1 and 2 that connects with Genesis. There, Okay? Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. <clears throat> know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You cannot get any more plain, any more clear than that. It is those who are of the faith that are the sons of Abraham. If you are a believer here today, you are, spiritually speaking, an Israelite. You've received the circumcision of your heart. The heart of stone was taken out. You have a heart of flesh now. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Again, how can Paul say that the gospel was preached to Abraham? And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Are you a descendant, a child of Abraham today? If you are, if you are a believer, if you are of the faith, let me put it this way again. I, maybe this will help uh, some others. <clears throat> if you ever get bored or bogged down reading the Old Testament or reading some of these accounts because you just feel like, well, I'm just reading about Israel. I'm just reading about Old Testament stuff. I'm part of the New Testament church. I need to be reading New Testament stuff. This is our family history. Think of it that way. I know that there's... that. In every church congregation, there's at least one history buff. Or there's at least a handful of people who like to study their, their lineage, their family tree. You know, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. You know, all those things are big now, right? When we're reading these accounts, if we are of the faith, we are reading our family history. Do not disconnect yourself and say, well, that's ethnic Israel. I'm New Testament church. Mm -mm. If you're of the faith... God has one people. He has always had one people. And it is people of the faith. We're reading our family history. We are directly connected to everything that we're reading here. Just a note there. We are the offspring. In this text, there is specifically a land. The land of Canaan. That is promised. Well, now let's, let's do get a little bit New Testament. And we say... As the New Testament reveals, we know that judgment is coming. When the Lord returns, that this earth is going to melt away with fervent heat. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. What good would it do us to have a plot of land on the old earth that is melted away or that is cleansed and made new for the, for the new heavens and the new Ethnic, physical Israel in the Old Testament had a physical land. What is the land that is promised to us as true Israel? The new heavens and the new earth. It's not just one teeny tiny plot. It's all of it. When we see these things in the Old Testament, we say, okay, well there's from one man, 
came all the descendants, came from one man came all of the people of God. They were promised a land. And even you say Abram was told that God would show him a land. We know, we know that the people of Israel were in Egypt as slaves and they were led out and they went to the promised land. And we start to break that down. We say, oh wow, there's a lot of connections there. Hmm. We're in sin. Bondage. Egypt. Sin. Christ comes. Sets us free from our bondage. Leads us through the wilderness. We have our sojourning through the wilderness. We don't actually belong there. We're just passing through. Because we're going to the promised land. Promised land is Canaan because that land was promised to Abraham. But what is promised to all of God's people eternally? The new heavens and the new earth. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Give me a head nod or a hand raise. Are, are we tracking? We see the connections? Amen. These things are significant. We can see these things. Not fully, but we see the types and we see the shadows in the old. We're just in Genesis 17. Yes, I've used cross references. But when you are at home and you are reading the book of Genesis, you can make these connections. And, and God desires for us to see these things because this is the whole point. I don't think God wants His people to read the book of Genesis without making all of the connections to Christ and the gospel and salvation and the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. I don't think God wants His people to read all of these things and not make the connections. Why? Because even Paul in the New Testament says all those things happen for us as an example for us. Even Jesus Christ Himself says that all of the Old Testament is pertaining to me. All of the things in the Scriptures Pertain to me. Therefore, when we read the scriptures, Old Testament specifically, I strongly believe God desires for his people to see the Son written all over it. To see salvation and redemption through the Son on every page. And if we're not reading Scripture that way, I would make a pretty strong argument. We're probably misreading the Scriptures. And we'll close with this. Once more. I know we've talked about this at least twice. I'm not preaching another sermon, so don't panic. We're closing with this. God's making a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. He will multiply the offspring. It's an everlasting covenant. You say, Caleb, I know you talked about if you're here today and you already think that you're a descendant of Abraham or you're part of Abraham's family. But what what if I'm on the fence or what if I what if I kind of know that I'm not of the faith? Can I? Can I still kind of be a part of that? Like, well, how does that happen? You're justified by faith. What makes somebody a descendant of Abraham? Faith. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, so it is with us. It's the same thing. The God saved by grace through faith. It is the grace of God 
that causes the new birth, washed in the regeneration of the Spirit, born again, just like Jesus told Nicodemus. It's like the wind. You can't see it. You know that it's there. You see the effects of it. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. That's God's grace that gives people eyes to see, ears to hear. It's God's grace that takes out that heart of stone and puts a heart of flesh. It's God's grace that raises the spiritually dead to new life. By grace, through faith. Somebody who has been granted eyes to see and ears to hear will never not follow Jesus. Catch that. Somebody who has actually been granted eyes to see and ears to hear. Somebody who has actually been born again will never not follow Jesus. Will never not believe. Okay? So we're saved by grace through faith. So you say, I kind of feel like I understand, even though I didn't come in here identifying as a Christian, or I definitely didn't come in here identifying as, you know, seed of Abraham. But I get what you, like, I feel like I understand what you're saying. And I, like, I, I kind of feel like it's for me. Like, I, I do want to follow Christ. I do want to be of the lineage of Abraham, of the household of Abraham. I do want to be a child of God. Like, I believe that. Hey. Justified by faith. Repent and believe the gospel. All who believe will be saved. Justified by faith. And again, for those of you who are regulars, you've heard me say this before. We trip up when we, oh, yeah, right, but what do I got to do? What do I got to do to actually be one of those Christians? What do I have to do to actually make sure that I believe? Repent and believe. Justified by faith. Do you believe that Jesus, the true Son of God, shed His blood, laid down His life upon the cross to atone for the sins of all who would ever believe? That He has risen, ascended at the right hand of the Father. He has conquered sin and death and all who believe will be saved. All sinners who believe, of which you are a sinner, I am a sinner, all sinners who believe will be saved. Do you believe that? Okay. Justified by faith. There's no magic formula. There's no ABC 123 program. Believe. Saved by grace through faith. So I pray that even just these first eight verses of Genesis 17 has given us much to think about, much to digest, well, much to chew on, then much to digest. We'll continue to go through Genesis 17 uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after that. It's going to take at least two more Sundays uh, as we really start to unpack the idea of covenant and God's covenant people and, and all of those good things. So if you're a believer here today, I pray that this has been an encouragement and it has edified you and it's increased your understanding. If you're here today and you're thinking about these things and you're you're curious or, or whatever else, you know, you can always ask me questions after church if you would like some clarification or anything like that. But if you're here today, you're under the sound of my voice, you're unsaved, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Be saved. Let's close in a word of prayer.